Ephesians. If you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we land this morning. And I know you might be thinking to yourself, you typically don't hear Christmas sermons or Advent sermons coming from Ephesians chapter 2. But I really want us to see over, uh, starting really last week and then moving uh, through these next several weeks, um, that uh, we don't have to isolate ourselves to the traditional Christmas passages, the, the stories of Christmas uh, in the birth narratives of Christ, uh, of course our, our references in Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and throughout uh, the prophets, but really for us to see God's providential purposes, we, we open up to the Bible and Scripture as an entirety in seeing God's plan and fulfillment in Christmas. So last week we turned our attention to the Advent theme of hope. And there we look to Romans chapter 15 where we saw the glorious truth that Christ became a servant. That's, that's Christmas right there. That Christ became a servant in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, that opens up the entire rest of the Bible to us to see God's purposes in Christmas. And as we saw this also, as God uh, did so, Christ became a servant in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and to realign our worship away from ourselves and toward him. So this morning, we move to this week's Advent theme of love. And I want to ask us, and I want us to ask ourselves, why did we need Christmas? Why did Jesus have to be born of a woman born under the law so that he may redeem those under the law? I want us to get to that biblical answer, and I want us to hold tightly to that answer this season as we see it revealed in Scripture. So I'll ask you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's Word as you are able as we read our text for this morning, which comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of God. 
Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you this morning, eager to uh, be impacted and changed by the reading, the preaching of your word, I pray that you would protect this time. I pray that you would guard me from error, that you would focus our hearts and minds clearly on your love as revealed in this time of Christmas. God, I pray that you would help us to see your providential purposes as revealed throughout your entire word as fulfilled at Christmas. And God, I pray that that would help us to have an ever-abounding and deepening appreciation for this time of year, that it would truly transform the way in which we go about celebrating this season, and that it would impact and transform the way we love one another and the way that we love all. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So Ephesians is one of those letters in which we do not find a specific problem or occasion that prompted Paul to write to the church at Ephesus. So in this letter, Paul exposits truths of God's providential working in Christ. So he's not writing to address some specific quarrel or issue or heresy within the church, but rather just to affirm and reaffirm and establish their understanding and their theological framework for all that God accomplished in Christ providentially, that is, from eternity past and moving into eternity future. And so from this, from the letter to the Ephesians, we find two overarching themes that we can't help but see when we read this work. The first being that in Christ, all creation has been reconciled to himself and to God. And the second is that in his church, Christ has united to himself and to one another people from all nations. And he's done so, again, in his church. So these are our two overarching themes which kind of transcend throughout the entirety of the letter that he's building upon going throughout. So Christ, all creation, has reconciled all creation to himself and to God, and that in his church he's united to himself and to one another, a people from all nations. So, building upon that understanding, I want us to turn our attention back to the first three verses of our text for this morning, because these first three verses carry with them a weight, a, uh, a depth of understanding of ourselves and Christ, uh, God's actions in Christ at Christmas. So, again, First three verses here of our text for today. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. We see, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We're going to break that, that idea of being dead. We're going to break that down thoroughly here in just a little bit. In which you once walked. So again, this is that, that idea of that, this is what you were. And now that you are in Christ, this is who you are. Okay, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We have a, a thorough explanation of who we once were, right? And continuing in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. We'll get to that in a moment here as well. Like the rest of mankind. So we also have there not only a distinction of what we once were or who we once were, a thorough uh, explanation and distinction of that, and who we now are in Christ, but we also gain this greater understanding that all mankind stands in this way because we see that uh, uh, among whom we all once lived and then also we see like the rest of mankind. So we all once lived in that and the rest of mankind who are not in Christ are still living in this state. So what was the motivating factor of Christmas? It's our question at hand. What would cause God or prompt Him to send down His Son to be veiled in flesh for the very purpose of dying on the cross? We've thoroughly continued to, to harp on that these last three weeks, really, to, to see. We spent two weeks on hope, and now we're, here we are in love. We've thoroughly continued to unveil this idea that, that Christmas comes with the cross clearly in view. So what would prompt God to send down his son veiled in flesh for such a death? These first three verses inform us of the depths of our depravity from which Christ stooped to redeem us, to which he became a servant as we saw in Romans chapter 15. And this is clearly in view in the Christmas story itself. In Matthew chapter 1, as the angel appears to Joseph, we see this clearly declared. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then we're given a clear and distinct reason for he will save his people from their sins. This is the clear view, the purpose, the prompting of Christmas. In order for Christmas to happen, God had to supernaturally act, and he did so in a unique way that he had never done before. And so we know that God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, so again, what was the motivating factor here? Well, the first thing our text today does, and it does a thorough job of explaining for us, is what didn't motivate Christmas. But rather, it tells us why Christmas was necessary. It, it affirms what we see there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. And how does it do that? Verse 1. You were dead. The dead do not motivate. The dead do not prompt. The dead do not accomplish anything. You see, church, Christmas was necessary because we were dead. Christ had to be human in order to redeem humanity. Now, the question might be, well, are you saying God was forced to do it in this way? And I'll say, no. What I'm telling you is that God designed it that way. You see, the cross is not a flaw to Christmas. It's a feature. 
You see, in order for us to recognize this, we must realize the depths of our depravity, the depths of our deadness, as Paul so clearly puts it here, that we were naturally born into. And so that's what I want to break down for us real quick. And I've got simply three kind of prompts, three things that we can draw from the text here that that are clearly stated of our dead state, the natural state that we are born into, that we once lived in as those who are now in Christ, regenerate, and that the rest of the world who are outside of Christ still is in this state. Well, what does that look like? Being dead comes natural in this world. You see that, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We now know, like also, what caused us to be dead. It's our trespasses and sins. Well, how did we get that way? In which you once walked following the course of this world. So we're just, just naturally following the path of this world, being born into this world. All we have to do is do what's natural, and we are automatically born into this world as sinners in this dead state. Being dead comes natural in this world. So what else do we see here about our dead condition is that when we do what's sinfully natural, we submit ourselves to a different master. You see, this world is consistently, and you'll notice this in yourself if you ever uh, fall back into the flesh, which I know you do. So if this happens, you'll see that you try to be the one who is in control. And this is the message of the world, that you want to be the determiner of your future. Be the one who does this and that. That lift yourself up mentality, the one who does all, who gets the glory for such. Well, when we do what's sinfully natural, we submit ourselves to a different ruler. We may think that we are doing everything ourselves. We may think that we're submitting ourselves to no one. But what Paul describes here of our dead state is that when we do what's sinfully natural, we follow Satan, the prince of the power of the air. So you following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we can even in our dead estate, try to be the determiners of our future as much as we want. Try to be the one who calls the shots, does what we want, satisfies our flesh. But even in that, we are submitting ourselves to a different ruler. So what else do we see of our dead estate? Is that all mankind are naturally children of wrath. So we follow the course of this world. That's natural. And when we do that, we're submitting ourselves to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So we acknowledge, continue in humility, even as we're in Christ, to remember our dead estate, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now, an important follow-up 
question to ask here. When we consider, like, being dead comes natural. When we do this, we're what sinfully natural, following our heart, our mind, that's still sinful, not regenerate, submitting ourselves and following Satan. And all mankind are naturally children of wrath. The follow-up question to ask there is, whose wrath? Whose wrath are we under that we needed to be saved? Whose wrath are we under that this dead estate offended? God's. This is what is blatantly shined a light on in the Christmas story. We were children of wrath. God's own wrath. You see, we're familiar with our text of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But as you move on and continue in the context of what John is laying out there in his gospel and what Jesus is describing for Nicodemus in that scene, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's John 3, 18. You continue verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the dead estate that Paul is describing for the church at Ephesus. You go on to verse 36 of John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, this is what's at stake at Christmas. As we are under the wrath of God. But here's the beauty. That it is the love of God that prompted Christmas. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, Romans 1 so beautifully and eloquently describes for us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's the suppression of truth in our sinful hearts that causes us to continue down the path of darkness. And this is one of the great mysteries of his will, as Paul puts it in verse 9 of chapter 1 of Ephesians here. You can turn there. Maybe you don't even have to turn, depending on how it lays out in your Bible. But Ephesians 1, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, what he set forth in Christ. That God acted in his abounding love to save us from the weight of what? His wrath. And that is Christmas. That God sent Christ for this very purpose. With cross in full view and empty grave as the plan. Again, I want us to see the providential working of God from all eternity to accomplish his purposes in Christ. 
And that's the beauty of Christmas because when we grasp that, when we see that, we can appreciate Christmas more so than we ever have before. So again, look back to chapter one. Look back to chapter one here. Again, see, making known to us the mystery of his will, that's verse nine of chapter one, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So if the question hasn't been answered for you yet, I want to lay that out for us. Our question remains what we've been looking at. What motivated God to act at Christmas? Because I mean, for crying out loud, we were dead in our sins, children of wrath, under his just judgment, we had spurned him and continued to submit ourselves to the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Why on earth would he send his son to earth, veiled in flesh, to be crucified in the flesh, that we might receive adoption as sons? Why would he do that? Verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich, in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that so the reason, the because, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God set his love on us for the very purpose that we might be reflections of his gracious love. Now, this verse is explicitly talking of Christ's death and resurrection as the atonement and guarantee of our salvation in him. However, the implicit message is God's action at Christmas to send Christ for this express purpose. Because if, if this was the plan which he was accomplishing, that must mean that Christmas was a part of that plan. Now with that in mind, what then can we determine as the single motivating factor of Christmas? I mean, just so we can blatantly spell it out at this point. God's love is the single motivating factor of Christmas. At Christmas, the eternal word became flesh so that God might set his love on the unlovable. At Christmas, God set his love on us that we might know love and in knowing love be able to set our love on him. Did you catch that? Again, so he set his love on us and lest we think that we are then therefore the center of the universe, right? What was the purpose of him setting his love on us in Christ? So that we might know what true love is and in knowing love be able to set our love on him so that we can be that trophy, that beacon of his gracious love into eternity, giving him all the honor, all the glory. 
So don't think that because God set his love on you that you're the one who gets all the attention, right? He set his love on you so that you could give him the proper honor and glory due his name. So Christmas, as I said last week, is an indictment on our worship because we have incorrectly, continually set our worship on ourselves. And Christmas might be an indictment on our worship, but as it's plainly laid out here for us, it is not a condemnation, rather a hope-filled pronouncement of love. So it's an indictment on our worship, but it's an announcement that I'm here to change that, to be God with us. Now, if Christmas was the hope-filled pronouncement of his love, how did God display this love in Christ? For that, I want to point us to Romans chapter 5. You can make a note of it or turn there if you like, but Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, so we're still in that dead estate, which he describes in Ephesians. While we are still weak, at the right time, so again, just notice these phrases that we skip over, but have huge cosmic implications, eternal implications. The right time indicates plan, purpose, execution of that plan and purpose. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the love of Christmas is fully displayed at the cross. You can't separate the two. They're inextricably linked from eternity. The overarching point of this morning is this. You don't get the cross without Christmas, and you don't get Christmas if there is no need for the cross. Amen. We see this even just continually, beautifully laid out in the book of Galatians. I'll encourage you to turn there, but we're coming right back to Ephesians, so... Galatians is just the next door neighbor to Ephesians. If you just go to the left there in your Bible, Galatians chapter 4. We continue to see this unfurling of this providential plan from all eternity. Galatians 4 verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children... We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So we'll pause right there real quick because that's just affirming everything else that we just read in Ephesians. Like we were submitting ourselves to our sinfulness, submitting ourselves to the prince of the power of the air. So we're enslaved. Even when we think that we are living in the freedom of the flesh, we're enslaved. Continue, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, pause. Again, this is one of those phrases that has those huge, cosmic, profound, providential implications that we just kind of like jump over. When the fullness of time had come, again, 
purpose, plan, providence. God sent forth his son. That's Christmas. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So consider there those implications. Again, I kind of drew that out from verse 4, the, the fullness of time, right? We get that, purpose, plan, providence. But then at, at Christmas, you see, God sent forth his son. So in, in John chapter 1, we see in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So Jesus is the eternal word. So consider what's being said right here, that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The law is equated with the word, right? So it's the, Jesus is the eternal word. So God sent forth his son, the word, to be made flesh so that he would be under the very law that was given. To do what? To live perfectly according to the law in a way which we could never accomplish on our own. To redeem those who are under the law. Why? Well, we're told why. So that, that's the why. Because we might receive adoption as sons. And I know that sometimes that can cause us like, why does it only say sons? What about the ladies, right? Like, that's, that's not the point here. The point is we all receive the rights of the firstborn son. That in the firstborn Christ, who is fully deserving of all the rights of the firstborn son, we who are totally undeserving to receive the rights of the firstborn son, in him we get the rights of the firstborn son. So we all receive adoption as sons. And again, like I told you, we're going right back into Ephesians. So go right back to our text for today. To verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Because we continue to see Paul's exposition of how this uniting of all things in Christ, God's grand work and accomplishment in Christ, how that impacts us and moves us. Verse 8. Chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So as if that wasn't plain enough at this point, that you were dead, God acted. Right? He set his love on the unlovable. That's the idea here. It was the great love with which he loved us. That is what accomplished all this. His gracious love in Christ. For you, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Why? Verse 10. For, right, that's that word. Like it tells us like this, because of everything that I've just said, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just as he planned beforehand providentially in Christ to bring us to him, he planned providentially to make us his workmanship that we might be reflections of his gracious love created in Christ Jesus for these good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them continually reflecting his gracious love in all things. 
You see, Christmas was God's providential plan to set his love on us that we might, in Christ, be able to set our love on him. And I'll point you back once again. I know we're kind of everywhere here, but I want us to see just how grasping and seeing Christmas in all of Scripture helps us to see and savor it that much better this time of year. So back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, starting in verse 3. We see Paul rooting all of this, everything that comes after it, everything that we've read is rooted in this, his introductory statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate that providential working of God in Christ to bring us to himself for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Like this is the love of Christmas. That the work displays the work of the workman. So lest we all leave this morning with a a self-centered gospel. Because that's often what is at stake here when we continually talk about God setting his love on us, we don't go past that point to the purpose, which I kind of laid out earlier, was that the purpose of his setting his love on us was that we might be able to set our love on him and him alone and give him all glory and honor due his name. So lest we leave with a self-centered gospel, we need to allow this to be a, a reflective moment. If God has set his love on us in such a cosmically spectacular way as he did at Christmas, then how has and is that love shaping us? And how are we reflecting that love? I read this verse for us yesterday at Dave's service in 1 John 4. 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. Again, that's Christmas. Like, don't miss those little references to God's providential working at Christmas throughout all of Scripture so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation For our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so, with this also comes the challenge that if we are to reflect on how we are showing that love, we must also reflect are we speaking the truth in that? Because if we treasure truth, and it's by the truth that we have been set free then are we making sure that not only to our own hearts are we preaching the truth of God's word, but that we're preaching the whole counsel of God's word and how we live, how we talk, how we act to the world around us. 
because the rest of mankind is still in this dead estate and they need to know it just as we need to remember so we once were. So dear friends, may the love of God displayed in Christmas prompt us to love truly that Christ may be magnified in all. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we've seen this morning that we love you only because you have first loved us, that you brought us from death to life, and that you set about that purpose and that plan, that providential working in Christmas. And we see this, that in love you predestined us for adoption as sons. You've given us the right, the firstborn sons in Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your will. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to better grasp that, to better see that on display at Christmas, to be moved by it, and to be moved by it to repentance, to be moved by it to obedience. And Lord, I pray for those who have not realized this love, have not submitted to this love, who are still submitting themselves, enslaving themselves to that dead estate. I pray, God, that you would pierce their hearts with the truth of your overwhelming love made known at Christmas, that they might be able to rightly love you worship you, and be trophies of your gracious love. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who fits that description, that you would overwhelm them now and prompt them to move in obedience and repentance of sin in following you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.